Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 46, in between episode 11. This is an in-between episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. I just got back from South by Southwest where I gave a lecture and I met some of you, which was awesome. Uh, it was so great to meet fans of the show and talk about some of the episodes and some of the cookies. Yes, we had we had discussions about the cookies. Uh, and, we, and we talked about the future plans for the podcast and it was just great stuff. I loved it. And I had hoped to grab a few interviews right after I got back uh, so I could finish this episode that I'm halfway done with about learned helplessness. Um, but I got really, really sick, uh, before I made it back from Austin and that just ruined everything. So this will be an in-between episode with two segments. Up first is the audio from a portion of a lecture I did at DragonCon a few months ago, all about superseded scientific theories and other fun stuff. Then after that, you'll hear my interview with Steven Novella from way back in episode 16, in which he discusses the psychology and neuroscience behind conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorists. And, uh, oh yeah, so I should mention we're about halfway to our first big milestone goal over at Patreon. It would be fantastic if you could show your support and help the show reach its next goal, which is to add regular segments that require travel and hotels and food and all of that. Um, so all that money from Patreon will go to making the show uh, fantabulous and you can help make that happen. So to learn more, uh, go over to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Okay, here's our first segment, an excerpt from my lecture at DragonCon 2014. One of the weirder things about common sense is it gives us things that we have to unlearn. And uh, one of the things that everyone in this room has unlearned, but there's a remnant of it that still exists, and I've seen it all over the place today, uh, something that uh, this remnant of common sense we've unlearned uh, appears in our mythology and in our fiction, and that is uh, a topic that is near and dear to all of our hearts, and that is laser eyes. You know what I'm talking about, laser eyes. You've got the heat vision of Superman. Don't tell me it's not heat vision, it's heat vision. Uh, the... Uh, power bolts that come out of uh, the bad guys in Dragon Ball Z, the, um, the energy blasts of, um, of uh, the Iron Giant, uh, who he can't control them and it actually embarrasses him when he uses them in self-defense. It doesn't mean to hurt people. It uh, um, could be the concussive blasts of, uh, of Cyclops and he's worried he's going to hurt the things he loves or destroy the things he finds beautiful. We use these in all sorts of ways to tell stories. And they, you see them across all cultures and across all eras. Laser blasts out of our eyeballs is something that's near and dear to all of our hearts. And it's kind of got, had seen a resurgence here lately. You can go to this website called Laser Eyes. <laughs> and you can drop in a picture, and with no Photoshop skills, it automatically puts laser beams in people's eyes. This is actually what they show as examples of how to use their service. Um, now, this, is, this was invented in response to public demand because this was very popular last year on the Internet. Babies with laser eyes. <laughs> very, very popular. And of course, if you're interested in creating these and sharing them, you can go to babieswithlasereyes.tumblr.com. Pick out your favorites, submit your own. Um, but this is not a new idea. This is an ancient idea. In fact, uh, if you go to the Hindu text, Shiva one time got very annoyed with someone and opened up his third eye and used a super beam out of his super head to super incinerate someone to ashes. And uh, in the Celtic text, you have Baylor, who is this giant cyclops who can use the power of the sun to destroy armies with his single eye, which is pretty rad. But the, uh, these are old, old, old ideas, thousands of years old. But back in the day that people were sharing these ideas like this, it wouldn't have been considered all that fantastical because for a very long time, the way that we understood how eyes work was through something called the extra mission theory of vision. 
And the extra emission theory of vision is um, the idea that we see by putting, taking energy bolts and emitting them from our eyes and touching the world around us and feeling it with those energy bolts. Uh, the ancient Greeks believed this. Many of them did. They wrote about it. One of the things that they used to explain it was if you look at like a, a, a deer at night or if you look at any animal at night, you see reflected in their eyes. They didn't use the word reflected. They saw the fire in their eyes. and They thought it really was fire in their eyes. In fact, Plato said, that's how we see, is that we shoot fire out of our eyes. And the reason that when we're contemplating the meaning of truth of one of our best friends, that we don't engulf his face in flames, is, um, is that he said it was, quote, a gentle fire. A gentle fire caressed the world. And of course, some people, they were skeptical, and they said, um, so how come you can't see at night And uh, if you're shooting fire out of your face? <laughs> and... Uh, he said that because it has to mingle with another fire, and so there has to be like a campfire, and then your fire touches that fire, and they coalesce into the things that you see, or it could be the, you know, the, sun, the fire in the sky that's doing the same thing, and people are like, mm, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Very smart people said that makes sense. Uh, Ptolemy, Euclid, uh, Galen, all of them endorsed this. Galen was wishy-washy about it, but he finally said, uh, I go with extra mission. Uh, very learned, very smart people, the people who were supposed to be you know, the originators of our entire civilization, believed that the way that you saw, the way you read, was actually through headlights. Um, <laughs> so, we believed this for a long time, all the way up until about 1011, when uh, Al-Hazin came along. That's how what he's known in the Western world, as has his name in the Western world, Al-Hazin. He was very interested in things like color and um, refraction, reflection, angles, uh, lenses, that sort of thing. And based on what he was learning, he was like, this extra mission thing cannot work. He wrote a book called The Book of Optics in 1011 uh, that eventually uh, it, it developed the intermission theory of vision that eventually got translated to Latin and then published as a book and it fell into the hands of the Enlightenment and then it, people like Kepler built on that and through all of their hard work, you people in here today don't believe in the extramission theory of vision. But it's not so much you don't believe in it, it's that you unlearned it. Let me explain what I mean by that. Everybody's probably heard of Jean Piaget, the, uh, the great psychologist. Now, his work has been expanded upon and refined since his day, but if you recall, he's the one who came, uh, discovered the uh, stages of cognitive development in children. And that um, there's one stage in particular, the pre-operational stage, is somewhere before the ages of five or seven. And kids are really bad at something called conservation, which is ratios and fractions and imagining a material moving from one container to another. You've probably seen this. If you have kids, do this, because it may hurt your feelings, but do this. Um, take, you take a short glass and you fill it with a liquid and you take a tall glass and you have the child look at it and you say, okay, I'm going to pour this in this glass. And you pour it in the tall glass and you put it down and you say, okay, now does the tall glass have the same amount of liquid in it or more? And they usually say more. Um, you have to get to a certain age where you can cognitively get over your intuition in this matter. And he wrote in this research that uh, children at that age also tend to say that vision is accomplished through shooting beams of energy out of your eyes and touching the world around you. And he thought, wow, that sounds a lot like what the Greeks said. I bet that's something we all believe and have to unlearn. But he didn't do research into it. It, was, it wasn't until 1996 that um, Gerald Weiner and Jane Cottrell did uh, research in 1996 about how, um, how does this work? When does it actually uh, stop? What's the cutting off point? And do kids really believe it? And they did about 20 different studies, lots of different methodologies. It's pretty robust stuff. And they found that... Um, 49% of first graders say that vision is, is accomplished through extra mission. 70% of third graders and 51% of fifth graders in the United States say that extra mission is how we see. But what astonished them, what blew their mind, what really gave them problems was that one-third of college freshmen in the United States also. Yes. Yes. 33% of college freshmen in the United States believe that vision is accomplished through laser eyes. Now, he wrote... College students were behaving like pre-scientific ancient philosophers despite having received formal education on the topics of sensation and perception. What really bothered him was some of these were his students and they had just taken the part of the class in psychology about eyes. And he, this bothered him so much and uh, he tried to get to the bottom of it. He did some follow-up research and he came to the conclusion that so for some people you just didn't pay attention to science class and so you never lost your gut intu intuition of that that's how we see. Your common sense was never thwarted. But for most of the other people, even if they didn't believe specifically in uh, the extra mission, they did believe that it was part of vision. 
then so they both beliefs uh, coexisted. He actually wrote, and this is a quote from him, correct beliefs often coexist with incorrect beliefs and notions that are strikingly resistant to change. He said that it was a, a powerful intuitive perception, something that we can't get rid of, something that just happens in our minds. And um, because of that intuition, we started telling us these stories to ourselves, these post hoc, ad hoc rationalizations in the form of narratives that we also call just so stories. And just so stories rule the pre-scientific days. All of the superseded scientific theories are just so stories. My favorite one is this one. It's the goose tree. Now, for a very long time, for like about 700 years we know, probably going back much farther than that, people believed that there was a tree out there that when it grew to full size, these buds would come off of it. And when those grew to full size, they would grow wings and then pop off and fly away. And that's where geese come from. And very learned people believed this. In fact, they used it to uh, eat meat whenever they were giving up meat for Lent because it was neither fish nor fowl. So it was very uh, useful in that regard. And the reason they believed it was because they would find these goose-ish looking barnacles. Other cultures think they look like something else. They would find these goose-ish looking barnacles attached to driftwood and it would be floating in the water or it would, go, it would come up on shore. And then they would, uh, they would assume that, well, I, I bet I know what's happening here because there's a certain type of goose that's not around during the time of year that the barnacles are really all over the place. So there's probably a tree out there and the tree grows these uh, buds that turn into those geese, and sometimes the, the branch breaks off and falls in the water, and that's what that is. And people said, eh, sounds pretty good. And people believe, that, people believe that for at least 700 years. It's in all sorts of great uh, old books. And that's, uh, that's why we call that the goose barnacle, and we call that the barnacle goose, even till this day. Um, now, the real reason is migration. They didn't know about migration. They didn't know this particular animal migrated in the way that it did. And without that information, this story seemed to be a nice explanation for how things worked. Or you might have uh, this thing. This is the you know, spontaneous generation. Aristotle believed this. Many people believed in the spontaneous generation. The idea that if you leave a piece of meat outside long enough, it will turn into flies. It will become flies. Or if you leave a pile of dirty rags in the corner for long enough, it will become mice. It will actually turn into mice. Um, or if you take a, a, a log and you throw it into a fire and you get it hot enough, it will transmogrify into salamanders. Not that salamanders are already in the log and they're escaping a fiery death, that it will turn into salamanders. And there are so many of these. You've got the geocentric model. You've got the the Humeric model of medicine, the idea that all of our health and sickness is the result of the balance of blood and phlegm and black bile and yellow bile. All this stuff, uh, all these models work because um, this is how we naturally think. You know, until we kept, throughout all of our history, we kept falling into this giant hole of stupid. And the, and the only way we could climb out of that hole was to create a tool by which we could do that climbing. And that tool is, of course, the scientific method. And without it, uh, we get in a lot of trouble because this is the way we naturally think, all right? You have an emotion or an intuition. Then you form a biased conclusion over that. I'm sure you've seen this on Facebook before. Uh, then you seek supporting evidence through motivated reasoning. You stop when you think you've found enough evidence. That's actually called in psychology the make sense stopping rule. Uh, you only question the disconfirmatory evidence. Everything else passes through. You argue for your bolster conclusion with logical fallacies, and then you feel smug. And then you repeat all that if you get challenged, and you avoid all challenges. And the, that's the natural way we think. The unnatural way we think, and there's many ways of going about this, is the way I like to look at the scientific method, is that, you, yeah, you have an emotion or an intuition, but then you form a hypothesis, and you have observation and experimentation. See if it confirms your hypothesis. Then you disconfirm it. And if you disconfirm it well enough, you can let other people replicate what you've done, then you debate, then you argue, and everybody gets together, and they have parties, and they talk about it, and you can discard or keep it, and then based off everything you learned, you can form a theory, and then you can feel smug. Of course, that's not what we do naturally. Uh, the way we actually work is we tend to form these ad hoc, post hoc rationalizations, the form of narratives that we also call just so stories, and we don't just do that for the outside world. We also do it for the inside world as well. And this is no more starkly represented than in uh, split-brain patients. Um, a split-brain patient is a person, so their, their left hemisphere and their right hemisphere are no longer communicating well because the corpus callosum, the tissue that uh, connects them, has been almost completely severed in a corpus callosum. This is done for people who have uh, a certain severe type of epilepsy and to help ease the seizure from passing back and forth. Um, 
what you get is a very interesting phenomenon. Now, I'm going to describe this in very broad and like, you know, simple terms, but it works out like this. The, when you have a split brain patient, you have their right hemisphere, which each hemisphere controls a different eye or receives information from a different eye. So what the right hemisphere sees, the left hemisphere does not. But also the left hemisphere is responsible or mostly responsible for our production of language. It's called the left brain interpreter. Um, and so the, in the left hemisphere, a lot of explaining ourselves to ourselves takes place. It's the spokesperson for the organism, the spokesperson for the self. So in experiments, this is all done by Michael, Michael Gazinigam. Um, you show someone a really funny picture to the right hemisphere and the person laughs. But the left hemisphere notices the organism is laughing, doesn't know exactly why, but when you ask them, hey, why are you laughing? They'll say things like, I can't believe you people do this kind of work. It's ridiculous, it's wacky. And they laugh. The left brain has just come up with an explanation and kept going to not look back. Or you'll show uh, a picture of something that's um, horrible and grotesque, like a car wreck with mangled bodies, and the person will go, ugh, is horrible. And you ask them, why, why are you feeling that way? And they'll say, um, you know, I haven't been feeling very good since lunch. I think uh, I'm, some, uh, I'm maybe coming down with something. They come up with an explanation for, for what they're doing that's a lie, but they don't know that they're lying because this is a natural process that we undergo. It's called confabulation. Confabulation is explaining yourself to yourself with an ad hoc post hoc narrative story uh, that is sort of a just so story that you believe and just keep on going and never look back. One of the most interesting ways you can see this, and this is what's illustrated in this picture, uh, you have to imagine that these two sides are divided so that the two uh, eyes can't see what the other one's seeing. The right hemisphere is shown a snow scene, and then you're asked to, to use the hand that's controlled with that hemisphere to point to a corresponding picture, so they point to a snow shovel. And then the left hemisphere is shown a, a chicken foot, and you're asked to point to something that corresponds to it, and they point to a chicken. And then you ask the person to look down, and now, now the left hemisphere, for the first time, sees what both hands have pointed at. And they see a shovel and a chicken, and you ask, why did you point at that? And they say, because you clean out the chicken coop with the shovel. That's confabulation. It's an amazing process. And, it, of course, it happens in everyone's heads. It doesn't just happen in people who've had the split brain where it's easy to, to sort it out. A good example of this is the research done by Richard Disbitt and Timothy Wilson in the 70s. I love this. It's one of my favorite studies in psychology. They, had, they set up a, um, a booth with um, stockings, and each one stocking is side by side. There's four different kinds. And as people came through, they told them they were doing market research. They said, will you uh, tell us which one of these stockings you think uh, is the one that you would buy if it was offered. Which one is your favorite? So people would pick the one they thought was their favorite. They'd touch it, and they'd stretch it, and they, then they would say, why did you pick the one you picked? And people would say, I like the texture, I like the quality, it reminds me of my mom. Um, and uh, they said that uh, I picked it because of all sorts of reasons. But they never actually told the people the real reason they picked it. It's because it has to do with the serial position effect and a couple of other things. But when anything is, is represented in a series like this, from left to right, people who read from left to right like we do would tend to more often than not pick the thing over all the way on the right. And that's what people did. And they, they were expecting this. That's how the research was conducted. So most people picked the one all the way over on the right. But what they didn't tell all the people was that they're all the same stocking. So there's no way they picked it for the reasons they picked. What they actually picked it for was the reasons that they had set up. But not knowing that, they came up with an explanation for their behavior to themselves. They explained themselves to themselves, and it was wrong, and they kept going. And that's confabulation. And you can sum it up with uh, what George Miller said, which is, it is the result of thinking, not the process of thinking, that appears spontaneously in consciousness. We don't actually get to see how the sausage is made. So, but we assume we do a lot of times, and not being aware of the sources of our behavior and our emotions, we'll come up with a good ra story to rationalize them away. Now, you might think that um, the way around this is to be more like Spock. Be more like Data. You know, uh, tame your emotions. Get rid of them as much as you can. Get them all the way down to a manageable box, or get rid of them all together like Data. But the research suggests this would be a terrible idea, because people who suppress their emotions are far more irrational than people who don't. Antonio Damasio is a neuroscientist who studies people who have had a brain tumor or some sort of injury that causes them to be unable to experience emotions except as a very low light simmer. Might as well not be experiencing them at all. And um, they could be very intelligent people. They could be, score very high on, a, on an IQ test. But if you hand them an IQ test with a red pen and a blue pen and ask them to fill it out using one or the other, that becomes a 30, 45 minute long decision. 
they can no longer decide whether or not to pick red or blue because they start to pull out all these logic sequences of, well, here are the good reasons to have a blue pen. Here are the good reasons to have a red pen. And it's going back and forth. And it just bogs them down. They can proceed no further. He actually says that based off his research, when emotion is entirely left out of the reasoning picture, as happens in certain neurological conditions, reason turns out to be even more flawed than when emotion plays bad tricks on our decisions. In other words, a mind with judgments and decisions corrupted by bias and passion is really the only kind of mind that can choose a path, ascribe value, and get anything done. And part of the reason that that's true is because a mind that has no emotions can't get into stupid arguments on the internet. This is Graham's hierarchy of disagreement. I, I suggest you look it up and read all the stuff he wrote about it. It starts at the top. I'm sure you've experienced this on Facebook, or uh, hope to God you've never commented on a YouTube video, but if you have, this is what... This is what you see at the top, refuting the central point at the bottom, calling him an asshat. That's how it works. And um, there's a model out there. So the question we know, what we're getting to here is, well, why are we so flawed in our reasoning? Why are we so biased? What is the, there has to be an adaptive purpose to this, right? Otherwise, it wouldn't have stuck around for so long. Or there has to be some reason it doesn't bog us down enough to be detrimental to our uh, evolutionary survival. Well, there's a model out there. This is supported by Steven Pinker and Jonathan Haidt. I like it a whole lot. I think it's an argument that we can lean toward. They're starting to unravel it, and it's this. It's called the argumentative theory by Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber. Find their research as cool stuff. And it works like this. Reasoning is best adapted for its role in argumentation. It makes human communication more advantageous, which should therefore be seen as its main function. The psychology of reasoning suggests that individuals are very bad at logic and probability and statistics and decision-making. But reasoning is not a flawed mechanism. It's just biased. And bias, having a biased reason for what you believe is not necessarily bad. It's just sacrificing uh, accuracy for speed. And sometimes that's a good idea if you're trying to survive in certain situations. So reason's function isn't to search for truth, but to prove that your hunches are correct to yourself or to another party. So confirmatory thinking is this adaptive trait in group communication because each person argues well for his or her intuitions, and over time, the weak arguments are squashed. So the idea is that if two people are having a conversation or you're just filling out some sort of test or some sort of IQ thing, you don't actually reason through it. You have to start an argument before reasoning comes online. That unless new information is presented to you in the form of an argument, you don't apply disconfirmatory thinking. I know you felt this. If somebody says something ridiculous that you know is not true or it's in your wheelhouse of expertise and you're like, okay, immediately you start constructing the argument against it. Or even if you don't plan to ever have that argument, you might start forming that argument in the shower. Like, I don't think that's true. <laughs> they say basically argumentation activates reasoning. And um, that's not... If we ha now that we have this tool to dig, our hole out of that, uh, dig out of that hole of stupid science, you then find a way to put argumentation into a framework that elevates it beyond just bickering, and you can really get a lot of stuff accomplished. Politics is argumentation institutionalized. Science is argumentation institutionalized. Jonathan Haidt writes that we must be wary of any individual's reason to, to, to reason, but if you put individuals together in the right way, such as that some individuals can use their reasoning powers to disconfirm the claims of others, you can create a group that ends up producing good reasoning as an emergent property of the social system. So uh, let's, let me show that in a really fun way. This is the uh, ball and bat problem that Daniel Kahneman is famous for creating. It goes like this. Um, a ball and bat together is a dollar and 10 cents. If the bat costs $1 more than the ball, how much does the ball cost? Most people say 10 cents. Even if you didn't say that, it's the first thing you think of and you have to suppress it because that's what your intuition tells you. And a lot of what we talked about today is about, mm, look out about that intuition, that common sense. Now, let's say um, if you statistically imagine a group that acts like a, the way it works out in these experiments, about 90 people out of 100 are going to say 10 cents. And imagine there are 10 naysayers. The naysayers will have to present a good argument. They say, no, look, you know, a, do a dollar more than 10 cents is a dollar 10. A dollar 10 plus 10 is a dollar 20. And that's not right. Five cents plus a dollar more than five cents is a dollar five is a dollar 10. You present it like that, everyone who disagreed will suddenly flip over. The good argument destroys the bad argument in, in a group. Now, a single person may never discover they're wrong, but in a group of arguing people, the truth comes out. So, on the Internet, it's a great thing that people argue as to whether or not it's good to spank people. Uh, uh, before we had the Internet, you might live your entire life never having your beliefs confronted. Now, every single thing you have an opinion about has your belief confronted, whether it's whether or not The Avengers was a good movie, whether or not fettuccine Alfredo was delicious, 
whether or not climate change is real. These are things that people argue about online. And the suggestion from the argumentative theory is that this is making us all smarter as a group. The, uh, right now, the, the problem is, uh, should we have gun control or not in the United States, and how strong should it be? That argument is playing out right now. The, uh, there's not really a not a, enough evidence from the scientific community to favor one side or the other, and we're going to work it out. Everybody thinks that they are the smart person, everybody else is ridiculous. But um, as a group, things tend to work out. And reason allows people who have the right answer, this is Hugo Mercier, to find arguments to convince the others. And allows those who have the wrong answer to accept these arguments and to see their strength. But it can take some time. It may take a couple thousand years, but eventually somebody will present the argument that allows people to see correctly, literally, right? Or it may just take one person in a very intense situation to explain to everybody what's missing. So it's true, yes, you're unaware of how unaware you are. You're the unreliable narrator in the story of your life. But with the tool of science, the thing that digs us out of the hole, stupid, placed into a, a uh, framework in which argumentation can create good results, it's now true that you can say, yes, you are not so smart. But thanks to the application of these things that we figured out, after a couple thousand years, you are now less dumb. Thank you. Up next, neurologist and head of the New England Skeptical Society, host of The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, Stephen Novella, will tell us all about the neuroscience and psychology behind conspiracy theorists and conspiracy theories. But first, this message from our sponsor. This episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast is sponsored by Wealth Front. Wealth Front, the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. It automatically rebalances your portfolio and reinvests your dividends, all commission-free. Wealthfront manages more than $2 billion and has saved millions on taxes for its clients. Visit Wealthfront.com slash so smart to get your first $10,000 managed for free. That's Wealthfront.com slash so smart. So that's the end of the commercial, but there is a legal statement that must be made um, on behalf of the sponsor. And so they've asked me to read it, and I'm going to read it very quickly. Wealthfront Incorporated is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are offered through Wealthfront and Brokerage Corporation. Member FNRA and SFPC, this is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risks, and there is a possibility of losing money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please visit Wealthfront.com to read their full disclosure. <laughs> yeah. And now, our interview with Stephen Novella from episode 16. I think a lot of people would, uh, since you are an expert on conspiracy thinking and conspiracy theories, conspiracy theorists, what they would like to know um, from your area of expertise are Glenn Beck, Jesse Ventura, and Alex Jones involved in some sort of conspiracy to protect us from learning that the reptilians used thermite paint to take down the Twin Towers on 9-11? <laughs> yeah. Are you asking if the conspiracy theorists are like a false flag operation? Right. Are they some sort of uh, operation to keep us from the real, real, real truth? Uh, well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, let me say that. So, I mean, basically, no. I mean, they're obviously, they're not deliberately engaged in any kind of deliberate deception or misdirection to discredit conspiracy theorists and conspiracy theories so that we don't notice the real things. But I do say that, you know, if your interest is being a watchdog on government to uh, prevent government excess or corporate excess or whatever, weaving bizarre conspiracy theories is not the way to go about doing it. You're, you're not doing your job. And if anything, you're in fact providing cover if there, if there is anything nefarious going on. So I do think that it does distract from the legitimate job of being a watchdog on, you know, the powers that be. Well, you know, a lot of people 
who I think watch those shows, they think of themselves as being like they they believe that they are critical thinkers and that those shows make them critical thinkers. So um, from your perspective, what is going on there in a person's mind who thinks that, okay, I am being skeptical. I'm watching and listening to people who are questioning everything. Yeah, it's uh, it's cynicism, really. It's not skepticism. Just blanket disbelieving everything any authority tells you is not critical thinking. That's not skepticism. That's being a contrarian, you know. So, but I do frequently encounter people who think that just being a contrarian and just disbelieving everything makes you a skeptic, and it's not that easy. Being a skeptic, being a skeptic means separating what's likely to be true from what's likely not to be true by using some kind of process of evaluating logic, evaluating evidence, trying to step back and look at your own thought process, what we call metacognition, thinking about your own thought processes. It's not just a blanket, oh, I don't believe anything, everyone's lying. That's just naked cynicism, which is kind of a cheap way to imitate skepticism, but it's not skepticism. Mm. Okay, so I, I just looked at the recent Gallup poll, um, and it uh, there was a right around the time of the um, anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, they brought out the uh, latest research by Gallup, and they said that in 1963, um, 29% of Americans believe one man was responsible for the JFK shooting, and 52% believe that there was a conspiracy. In 1976, um, that belief in a conspiracy theory went to 81% of the population, and then today, most recently in 2013, it's at 61%. So, um, and there were a lot of uh, articles about that. From, um, from your perspective, what is going on here? Why is this conspiracy theory is so um, popular and prevalent and um, even after all these years. Yeah, I mean, JFK is an iconic figure in American history, and I think that that assassination had a huge impact on the American psyche. So it's not surprising that people are still interested in it, still talking about it and speculating about it. It was a very complicated historical event, and there's a lot of things that that happened that might superficially make someone wonder, you know, could one person really uh, get that close to the president and and take him out? And, um, you know, the the assassination of uh, Lee Harvey Oswald by uh, Jack Ruby can superficially be made to seem like a silencing um, and... So, you know, it's a big historical event and people assume that a big event must have had a big cause. There's a disconnect in our mind. The idea that one lone nut took out the most powerful person in the world and all the ramifications that flowed from that. And yet there was no one else involved seems incongruent. So but that's again, that's just our gut feeling. You have to step back from that and look at the actual facts. And when you do that. You know, it becomes obvious, becomes evident that all of the physical evidence points to one shooter in the sniper's nest in that book depository. And the only person that really was in the right place at the right time was Lee Harvey Oswald. He, he clearly his behavior was clearly guilty. I mean, he fled the scene. He killed a police officer that he encountered, you know, who just approached him for questioning. Mm-hmm. Um, so and despite the all of the conspiracy theories and you know 50 years of speculate of of investigating no one's been able to find any real evidence of an actual conspiracy all they find are anomalies they do what we call anomaly hunting where um you know if they find something that seems unusual then that becomes evidence of a conspiracy not they don't know what conspiracy, just something's off here. Something's not right. Uh, but, you know, if you take a deep dive into any historical event, you're going to find weird stuff, weird coincidences, people acting in a way that you can't fully explain because you don't to have all of the all of the information about what situation they were in. You could make a conspiracy out of anything. So well, how would you define a conspiracy theory? What are sort of the moving parts of your typical conspiracy theory? What separates it from other types of um, delusional thinking? Uh, well, when you're asking that question, you're really asking about a, what we call a grand conspiracy theory. There are obviously small conspiracies. You know, three people in a boardroom can certainly concoct a conspiracy to defraud their competition, for example, or mm-hmm. or whatever. But a grand conspiracy involves uh, many people having to deceive 
the media, the government, you know, large organizations, uh, or um, either on a, a huge scale or over a long period of time. Uh, grand conspiracies are inherently implausible because they tend to collapse under their own weight. Just you know, you, you have to make them bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, in order to explain away, like, hmm, why isn't the media exposing the flaws in the standard story about 9-11? Well, they must be in on it, too. So they just, you know, massively increase the size of the conspiracy. Uh, the, the structure of a conspiracy essentially divides the world into three kinds of people. There are the people who commit the conspiracy, the conspirators, they uh, generally are perceived of as being incredibly evil, cartoon, you know, mustache twirling evil. They have amazing resources and can concoct these fabulously complicated plans. But at the same time, they're incredibly naive and stupid because they have to be in order to expose themselves to, to some extent. And then there's the... Um, the army of light, right? The people who can see the, the who can see the conspiracy for what it is, that are trying to save the world from the evil uh, conspirators. And then there's the vast majority of everybody else who are the dupes, the sheeple, right? Every everyone else in the world. So that's the that's the world according to the conspiracy theorist. They're in the army of light. They've seen the conspiracy, and everyone else is too stupid to say it. So, um, and you mentioned this earlier. Um, what is What's strange about this to me is that um, it seems to be part of, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to be just sort of part of the way we're naturally built to think about things. And there can be uh, certain triggers in the environment can cause a, a person who would normally consider themselves to be rational to start to kind of fall into this sort of thinking. Is that, Would you say that's true? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think we all have a little conspiracy theorist living inside of us, right? We all tend to be a little paranoid to think, hmm, how could these things fit together? Is this all just a coincidence? We don't, we inherently don't like coincidences, apparent patterns. They speak to us. They, they, they emotionally respond by saying, oh, that's something real there. We don't like, you know, dismissing apparent patterns as just coincidence or illusion. And so we look for the hidden hand, the, the, the meaning, you know, and when you're trying to connect events and uh, explain apparently disconnected events or apparent anomalies by saying, well, that's because there's this malevolent uh, intelligence behind it all who's controlling everything. That's a conspiracy theory. So it's a form of pattern recognition in order to generate a narrative um, that makes sense of a, compl a complex world. And, you know, you could make... Um, I hate to resort to hand-waving sort of neuropsychological arguments, but it certainly makes sense that we would um, have some tendency to look out for ourselves, to be on the lookout for people conspiring against our interests. Um, you know, but we, we evolved, of course, in small tribes, you know, where like, you know, a couple people could be banding up against us. But now that same um, mental hardwiring exists in a worldwide complicated civilization, but we apply sort of the same pattern recognition and saying, oh, there's, there are, the forces are conspiring against me, but these forces are now governments or mm -hmm. institutions. You know, it's generational. It's not just a, a few people who live near me. And it always seems to me that it's like um, conspiracy theories are, are projected toward things that are just very complicated to understand. And it like takes something that's this thing that has lots of moving parts is very complicated. There's more to it than uh, there are more people involved than you could ever meet and talk to. And then it turns it into something really, really, really simple. You know, like the uh, it's like taking something very complex and making it super simple and easy to pick apart in some way. Yeah, I mean, partly it's uh, a desire for simplicity and understanding. I'm going to make sense of this wide array of events and factoids by saying it's everything is created by the conspiracy. Any evidence that's there, that was put there by the conspirators. Any evidence that's missing, that was hidden by the conspirators. And so there's no once you're inside that that mental framework, there's no way out. It's a self-contained belief system. No evidence can convince you that the conspiracy is not true because that was just planted. Uh, right. So like when the, the uh, moon hoax conspiracy theory, pulling off the, a hoax 
to fake going to the moon was actually more complicated than just going to the moon. <laughs> right. Uh, but and every, every time we come up with more evidence, oh, look, we have a satellite now in low moon orbit that's taking pictures of the Apollo 11 landing site. And you could see the footprints of the astronauts. I mean, it's smoking gun evidence <laughs> right. that we were there, that people were walking around on the moon. Well, they, NASA must have faked it. Oh, there you go. So I, there's no nothing we could do, you know, unless we even if we took that person to the moon and put them at the Apollo 11 site, they could say, oh, they just mocked this up for me. I mean, there's just no evidence that could possibly get them out of the mindset um, because any, any evidence could have been faked. Right. Is it does this um, does this does this frustrate you? Because I imagine that you have had to deal with a, a lot of people who are very who have become very good at insulating um, and defending themselves from uh, a, any sort of evidence attack. Is this something that really frustrates you as, as a uh, as a leader in the skeptic uh, community? I mean, it fascinates me. I try not to be frustrated. If, if that sort of thing frustrates you, then you're in the wrong business because that's just that's day to day. Um, I mean, obviously, I can't help but be frustrated at some points in time, but I just always have to step back and say this. What I'm interested in here is what, what's going on in people's minds their thought process that leads them to this point? How can I deconstruct their thought processes and, and figure out exactly where they're going wrong? And then can I figure out a way to explain that to them? And if not, why? What, 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 what escape hatch are they using to get away from logic and evidence? So by just you know taking a, a sort of an academic view of it, I try to remove myself emotionally from the, what would otherwise be an extremely you know, on a personal level can be extremely, extremely frustrating, but you just you can't let it get to you. Otherwise, you know, you'll go crazy. It's like letting the trolls get to you online. Right, if, if that's right. if that happens and you just get offline, you just don't engage in social media if you're going to let trolls get under your skin. <laughs> um, for me personally, the thing that was most uh, frustrating and bizarre was right after Sandy Hook, because um, mm -hmm. like I think we all uh, anyone who is into this world of um, of uh, hoaxes and uh and um delusional thinking you'll you're pretty familiar with things like the illuminati and chemtrails and mm -hmm. the moonland jfk um drug companies oil companies all that kind of stuff but then out of nowhere comes this event um and if anyone doesn't remember it was uh, a a young man went into a school he shot 20 students uh six staff members and right afterwards it was almost it was like within hours um this conspiracy theory community started to blossom online and, mm -hmm. and say that it was something created by the government to encourage uh, gun control. Um, right. That worked really well, didn't it? <laughs> right. So what, um, it, is there something that we could do? For, uh, do, you, do you think that we could either prevent or prepare for this sort of uh, thinking and behavior? I think so. I mean, I do think that we have to be aware that around any big emotional in the media event like that, there's going to be a community of people who are going to try to create a conspiracy around it. And I think there are things that we can do as a society to maybe at least mitigate that. I do want to say, though, about Sandy Hook, you know, I, um, I live in Connecticut. I have family who live in Sandy Hook. And I oh, personally wow. I personally know people who were at the school during the shooting or were among the first responders so I guess I'm part of the conspiracy, too, because, you know, I, I'm one step removed from people who are actually there. The notion that this was all staged or faked is ridiculous. I mean, now that you have a conspiracy that would have to involve an entire community, mm -hmm. how could a community not know if 27 people who live in their community were killed or not, if these families were fake? I mean, how, that's, doesn't, that one boggles my mind. How could you, if you think through it for even a minute, it, it just cannot, cannot be. It makes absolutely no sense. But what they're looking for are, again, the anomalies. Oh, the police found some guy walking through the woods and they, uh, they took him for questioning and put him in the car and then they let him go 15 minutes later. Well, who was he? Well, the fact that you don't know who that guy was doesn't mean that he's part of some conspiracy. Turns out he was an off-duty cop. They questioned him. He flashed his bag, badge and they let him go because he checked out. You know, they were checking out anybody who was in the area. But you would never think, oh, maybe that guy was an off-duty cop. But weird things like that happen. Just, that's just the nature of reality. And that's what, you know, your inability to explain exactly every little thing that happened doesn't mean 
that it's it's there for a conspiracy. It means you just don't have enough information to make perfect sense of every tiny little detail. Um, but getting back to like, what can we do to to maybe mitigate these situations blossoming? I do think we need to um, document the facts on the ground very carefully, with an eye towards the fact that you know someone's going to try to distort this into something that it isn't. And I do think that we really need to weigh the the conspiracy angle when deciding um how transparent to make events um so for example like the decision to uh, when the, when the US government found and killed bin laden mm-hmm. and they decided all right we're just going to going to you know kill him on site get rid of the body not show any video you know not let this turn into anything um, like an internet, you know, minimize its in, you know propaganda purposes internationally, et cetera. But at the same time, by playing it all close to the vest like that, you know, it looks like they have something to hide. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't believe there's any conspiracy about that, but I mean, they 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 had to balance those those various factors. Um, so I think you know the government uh, and media have to think about you know I, I think we should err more on the side of being transparent. And uh, and storing and saving evidence, even though it might not legally be necessary, I think just for historical purposes, you know, having original evidence available for independent review is does go a long way. I do think to at least marginalize the conspiracy theorists. Like for example, with nine eleven, I do think that the um, skeptical analysis and deconstruction of the conspiracy theorists really helped to marginalize them over the years. They're never going to go away. They're always going to be there on the fringe. But I do think it re- it, it reduced the size of that phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And it it's 9-11 is one thing, and it's incredible and strange that people are still um, pumping effort into that conspiracy theory. But in Sandy Hook, people were calling the... Um the parents they were harass- mm-hmm. harassing parents saying that they're that they were actors it was one of the most infuriating and bizarre things i've ever seen whenever it comes to this uh you know human behavior on a mass scale so i would hope that um that someone out there is is uh consulting with um people in positions that could maybe mitigate that sort of stuff because it is obviously a human behavior that i think is going to happen again somewhere along the line yeah, absolutely. You know, and it could be very upsetting and very destructive. Um, and and again, you could be motivated to sort of isolate those families, which I think you know, they deserve their privacy. But then, of course, any attempt at isolating them for their privacy then fuels more conspiracy theory. So wow. it's a bit of a catch twenty two, right? You know, um, and almost either way, you kind of fuel the conspiracy theorists because they'll take silence as an admission, to talking about it as. A, a diversion, you know, whatever you do or don't do, they'll spin that into, see, that supports the conspiracy. Mm-hmm. So you, you can't win in a way. But I do think that um, the one thing that that governments shouldn't do is just default to their hide everything sort of reaction to, you know, to keep everything hidden is, is kind of the, the, just the natural instinct. Um, and I think that they need to um, think about that carefully, you know, when and and be as transparent as they can be. Uh, to at least you know minimize the fodder for the conspiracy theorists. Is conspiracy theories are such a fascinating thing about the human mind because um, I'm reminded of um, you know ant spirals, the ant death spirals, where the mm-hmm. uh, where ants get into a, a um, sort of a feedback loop where they can't stop themselves from going round and round and round. Um, it always conjures up that image in me in my mind because it's like. Um, the several of the elements of uh, the way we cons- you know make sense of the world and, and the way that we um, try to logically go about uh, disassembling experience can get us caught in this weird loop that's almost inescapable. Um, how would you recommend that if you're one on one with someone who is deeply invested in conspiracy theory, what would be the best way do you think to proceed to try to try to knock them out of that loop? Oh, I don't have any magical solution to that. I don't think that there's any formula or any single approach that works because of exactly what you're saying. I, I like the analogy of the ant death spiral. Uh, you know, people, we like to think of ourselves as um, like completely free thinkers, but in fact, you know, we we are following algorithms just like ants are. Just our mental algorithms are a lot more sophisticated and complicated. the The solution is that you have to get out of that algorithm. To, 
that's again the metacognition you have to think about your own thought processes um and, you know as much as you can you know and, and even thinking about the way that you think about your thought processes um because you know we're just otherwise that we, we tend to default back to our biases and our mental pathways of least resistance um so when people are stuck in a in an isolated belief system like that, a, a closed off belief belief system, there is no way to get through to them. By definition, um, all you can do is is just be you know persistently try to get them to think you know about that very fact itself. Try you know try to get them to think about the way they're approaching the evidence, the fact that they're not being open to the outside and it'll either resonate with them or it won't. You'll, you'll get through or you won't. I, and I have gone through to people, um, although not, not, uh, usually one-on-one, but, you know, like through my podcast, but that's because, you know, I get to talk to tens of thousands of people at once. And so when you, when you're dealing with those kind of numbers, yeah, people email me and will, and will say that, you know, they did, um, come out of that way of thinking over time. Like eventually we sort of broke through, we cracked through, but the probability of doing that uh, on any individual is uh, statistically remote. I mean, you know, belief systems are very good at protecting themselves. Wow. Um, thank you. That's really cool. The, um, uh, we're sort of running out of time here, and I want to get in a, a few of these questions from uh, from Facebook. I told, I told people on Facebook that you would be a guest on the show, and there was a, there were a lot of people that wanted to ask you different things, so I grabbed a couple of them. Um, this one comes from Steve Corey, and he asks: Have there been any have there uh, been conspiracy theories that at one time were dismissed as being part of the fringe that were later discovered to be true? And if so, does this play into the hands of conspiracy theorists who are then able to say, "See, you never know." Uh, no, I mean, we get that question a lot. And the answer is no, there are no grand conspiracies that were on the fringe because they were highly implausible that then turned out to be true. There certainly have been government and corporate conspiracies in, in at the, uh, the moderate level conspiracies, the corporate boardroom conspiracy, for example. Um, sure. We, we, those historically exist. We, we, we never doubt that the confusion is, you know, between the grand implausible cons- uh, conspiracies and the more small scale mundane conspiracies, nothing, no grand conspiracy has ever turned out, you know, despite the odds to, to end up being true. Okay. Um, and we, we sort of touched on a couple of these things earlier, uh, but Brad Clark asks, in a world that seems rife with hidden agendas of politicians and corporations, how do you define the line between a conspiracy theory and healthy skepticism and distrust of mainstream information? Yeah, again, that gets back to what I was saying. Um, and again, this isn't, I don't want to create the false dichotomy that there's two completely different types of conspiracy. It is a spectrum. You would say, at what point does a conspiracy become implausible? I just think you have to evaluate every claim on its own merits. What is the evidence? What's the plausibility here? Um, you know, is the thought process valid or are people just weaving conspiracy theories out of anomalies and, and ignorance? Um, so again, there's, there's, it's, it's the general critical thinking, skeptical metacognition formula, you know, just applied in this specific area to conspiracies. It's like saying, you know, what's the line between science and pseudoscience? Well, okay, this, that's a long conversation about all the little things that make science valid versus invalid. Um, so just, there's no, there's no way around just doing a detailed evaluation of any individual conspiracy claim. Uh-huh. Great. Um, so Bill Heidenreich asks um, in this, I'm going to sort of paraphrase this. He's saying that um, he cannot decide who to believe when it comes to uh, the debate over climate change because he hears from one side that there are conspiracies afoot trying to convince you that climate change is real when it's not. Um, if you don't have a lot of scientific knowledge, you're not you're just a you're very much a layperson. What's the best way to make heads or tails of something like that? Yeah, that's really tricky uh, because you need you need some kind of scientific literacy, scientific understanding, even if it's just broadly about how science work, how the institutions of science work. If it's all a mystery to you, then, yeah, you just have one group of people saying one thing, another group of people saying another thing. Um, the evaluation comes when you know, like, how the process of science works. And you could say, all right, you know, the, the consensus of scientific opinion among published, you know, peer-reviewed 
uh, legitimate research is all pointing in this one direction and, and their arguments all hold up. Whereas, you know, the, the uh, global warming is all a big conspiracy side of things. When you actually take any individual argument of theirs and, and drill down, it evaporates eventually. You know, eventually if you drill down deep enough, you realize that it, it, it was made up. It's just not valid. It's not a correct argument. And they actually don't have the consensus or or um, the weight of opinion on their side. You end up, you realize that it's the same, you know, few people who are generating all of the anti-global you know, warming um, opinions. Uh, so, you know, it, but there, you, you require some level, I think, of, of scientific literacy in order to make sense of it. Um, right. If you if you don't if you can't tell like a valid scientific argument from an invalid scientific argument, I don't know how you could separate those two things. Mm, okay, so more science education is required here. Yeah, uh, we, we need a scientifically scientifically literate public in order to participate in a democracy in the 21st century when we have to you know make decisions about things like should we be vaccinating all of our kids? You know, should should we be doing stuff something about global warming before it's too late, etc. Okay, uh, one last question. This is from Tandy Bird, and she wanted to know, um, are there certain traits that you've seen that seem to make a particular kind of person more susceptible to belief in conspiracy theories? Well, it certainly seems that way. I mean, I don't like to be an armchair psychiatrist, you know what I mean? So I try not to, like, analyze people's psychology um, just from casual, non-clinical interaction. But it is certainly recognized that there are some people have more of a tendency to be paranoid, to have what we call paranoid ideation. Um, and it's been studied. In fact, people who tend to, um, who b- tend to believe in conspiracies are also more likely to see patterns in random visual images as well, which is mm. really interesting. They might have this enhanced pattern recognition or they may just have a, a decreased uh, sort of reality testing filter, meaning that they're much more likely to think that patterns that they think they see are real. Um, so I think that's, but again, we all have that tendency to some degree. These just may be people who are farther along that spectrum. They're a little bit more paranoid, more, you know, uh, more intense pattern recognition, and they're less skeptical of their own, their own uh, perceived patterns. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's important and correct me if I'm wrong, but, uh, you know, people who fall into this line of thinking, it's, it's not stupidity. There's, they're not dumb. They're, they're very no, they're often very intelligent. You know, they're very good. I mean, ironically, people who are highly intelligent are a lot better at rationalizing their own beliefs. Um, so they, they're much more sophisticated in, in locking themselves into the beliefs that they want to hold. It's So in raw intelligence isn't enough. You really need critical thinking skills. You have to be able to get outside of yourself and think about your own thought process. Um, uh, so otherwise, it doesn't matter you know, how much you know, your factual knowledge, your memory, you know, other measures of intelligence actually work against you in that they will make it you know, they'll give you the tools to lock yourself into whatever belief system that you want. Wow, that's fantastic. Um, all right, well, uh, we're out of time, so I want to give people a chance. I know that people are going to hear this and they're going to want to find out how can they keep up with you. Uh, where can people find you out there in the Internet and stuff? So my podcast is The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. So if you go to theskepticsguide.org, then you'll, you'll get to our website. You can find The Skeptic's Guide on iTunes. Um, I also blog at Science-Based Medicine and Neurological Blog. Searching on any of those terms will get you to my stuff. And what, what sort of projects are you guys working on? What's, come, what's coming up in the future for you? Uh, well, our future project is we're trying to really develop the video end of our content creation. We've made some videos in the past. We're in the in the post production phase of a mini of a small web series that we that we finished filming over the summer. But we're really hoping to continue to move in that direction to make um, science and skeptically themed like YouTube and web videos. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a great pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, David. And now, a word from our sponsor. The You Are Not So Smart podcast is sponsored by Wealthfront, the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. Wealthfront's software manages your money using investment strategies that were previously only available to the wealthiest investors 
for just one quarter of the cost of using a traditional advisor. Wealthfront monitors your account 24-7, automatically rebalancing your portfolio, reinvesting dividends, and working to maximize your after-tax returns. Wealthfront is also overseen by a team of investment experts, the same experts who launched the Index Fund Revolution and who've written some of the most important books in finance. In case you're still not convinced, all you really should know is that Wealthfront manages more than $2 billion in client assets and has saved millions of dollars on taxes for its clients. So with Wealthfront watching over your investments every day, what will you do with all your extra time? Visit Wealthfront.com slash so smart to get your first $10,000 managed for free. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Head to boingboing.net for more great podcasts like this one. And head to youarenotsosmart.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes to listen to all of the previous episodes of this podcast. You can find links to everything that I talked about today in the show notes, which are available at youarenotsosmart.com uh, under this episode. And you can learn more about both of my books there. You can send your cookie recipes to david at youarenotsosmart.com. If I bake your cookie, I will send you a signed copy of one of those books. You can follow You Are Not So Smart on Facebook and Twitter and Google Plus for as long as Google Plus lasts. And on Twitter, it's at NotSmartBlog. I'm at David McCraney. Opening music, that's Clash by Caravan Palace. Music beds are by Banjo Apocalypse. this episode. Oh, I love them so much. And uh, please, please support the show on Patreon. Thanks.